I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. I have a new go-to pair of headphones I have to tell you about. I've been using the Trey headphones from Studio. that's S-U-D-I-O. These headphones are comfortable and cool, and they have a unique look that embodies the vision of Scandinavian design. Another thing I love is that these headphones don't get tangled up like most others. They're made with a tangle-free cord. With most headphones, you get style or tech, never both. Studio bridges that gap and offers high-tech headphones that offer crisp, quality sound, and they're stylish and modern at the same time. If you're looking for a pair of headphones that don't skimp on quality or design, you've got to check out Studio. Plus, they offer free shipping worldwide. Studio is offering murderish listeners a special offer of 15% off any purchase. So, do what all the cool kids are doing and head on over to studio.com, that's S-U-D-I-O.com, and enter the code murderish at checkout. You'll get 15% off your purchase. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I'm your host, Jamie Rice. During my sophomore year in high school, I heard about a murder that took place in a nearby canyon the year prior. It involved three teenagers who were Redlands High School students at the time. You know how these things go. You go to school in a small, quiet town, two local teenagers kill another teenager, and everyone ends up hearing about it one way or the other. I never knew the full story, but I did know parts of it. I had always heard the three boys went to the canyon to do a drug deal, but something went wrong, and one of the boys was killed. Turns out, the motive for this murder may have been something even more senseless than killing somebody over drugs. I decided to dive into this story because it has always been sort of folklore for me. After learning the full story, it bothers me even more than before. You're going to hear from someone who was a very close friend of the victim. 
and she gives insight into the weeks leading up to his murder. I reached out to other people who would have been able to give insight into the perpetrators, but none of them responded to my requests. In December of 1992, I was in ninth grade at Clement Junior High in Redlands, California. I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston was on the top of the music charts. Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back and Criss Cross's Jump were also huge hits at the time. All of the kids in the Redlands School District were getting ready to go on winter break. One high school senior, Justin Hopper, had been saving money and planning to move away from Redlands to get, quote, a fresh start. Justin shared these plans with his close friend, Susie, telling her he wanted to leave Redlands because he had gotten into a lifestyle that was getting too dangerous. Sadly, at the time Justin was sharing his plans for a fresh start, he didn't know he only had a few more weeks to live. On December 15th of 2002, just before winter break, two of Justin's schoolmates would end his hopes of getting the fresh start for which he had been planning. Justin would be dead before winter break and before he could save himself from the lifestyle that may have ultimately led to his untimely and heart-wrenching death. About a month before he was murdered, super weird, I hadn't seen him in a very long time, and I can't totally remember how we connected back up, but I ended up going over to his house and... For the first time ever, he was telling me all these things about his drug dealing and the whole sketchiness. And he was telling me that, you know, and I was like, long way, because he, I, it was not a part of my relationship with him at all. Like, he kept that from me. And he was just telling me how, um, you know, I was asking him, like, wow, aren't you, aren't you scared you're going to get caught and go to jail and all these things? And he's like, well, I've got people in RPD that will tip me off. And, you know, just crazy stuff. He was saying that he had a shotgun for protection in case, like, something went down. And I was like, what? Like, what is going on with you? So it had obviously, I mean, it had gotten to that point where it was like he had the awakening. Like, that this was, like, he needs to make a change. So I remember him telling me that he was going to, he'd been saving up money to go move to where his dad lived in Rialto to kind of have a clean start. And it just broke my heart because, you know, it just haunted me to just think, like, I literally had that conversation a month before this went down, where he, he was like, I know, you know, I gotta get out of Rutland's, I gotta get out of what I've gotten myself into and have a clean start, and I've got this money saved so that I can do that. You saying that he had been saving money is kind of eerie to hear because when he was murdered, Ryan Bangs reportedly stole like almost $600 out of his pocket after he was already dead. And he and Aaron Mercado went on a shopping spree the next day. Redlands is a small town in Southern California, about an hour east of Los Angeles. It's a town where everyone seems to know each other and second, third, and fourth generations have remained in town and raised their families there. The town is known for its vast orange groves and historic homes and commercial properties built in the late 1800s. Some of the historic homes even have underground bomb shelters in the yard. The town reminds me of a smaller version of Pasadena, which is in Los Angeles County and where the Rose Parade takes place on New Year's Day every year. Redlands is a safe town with good schools, 
and an average of three homicides per year in the early 1990s when this murder took place. The town is interesting, though, in that there is a clear distinction between North and South Redlands. Redlands is divided in half by the 10 Freeway. Everything north of the freeway is known as North Redlands, and everything south is known as South Redlands. The two sides of town could not be more different. South Redlands has beautiful, historic buildings and homes, as I described a little earlier. South Redlands does have many modest homes, but it also has a lot of wealth with many sprawling mansions. There have been some professional sports players who owned mansions in South Redlands. North Redlands, however, is much different. While there are plenty of nice yet modest homes, there are also some areas that are extremely impoverished. South Redlands is home to many spoiled rich kids, while North Redlands is home to some local gangs. Of course, both sides of town have good and bad aspects, but they are quite different. Something each side of town has in common is a drug presence. While I cannot say it was an epidemic at the time, drugs were definitely present in school on both sides of town. Parents on the south side most likely prefer to keep this hush-hush, but most people knew it was somewhat of an issue. The drug of choice at Redlands High School in the 1990s was meth, or speed as it was referred to at the time. Many of my very good friends in junior high and high school were on speed. It was the drug back then, and I wasn't, but I hung out with many, many people who were on it. I saw them do it. I saw... And, you know, it doesn't make you a bad person to be associated with those people. It just, it was the drug back then. While attending Cope Junior High, Justin almost lost his life at the hands of his best friend, who was on speed at the time. Justin's best friend stabbed him multiple times, which landed Justin in the hospital for several weeks. His injuries were serious. So serious that Justin told Susie about an out-of-body experience he had while he was being rushed to the hospital. And he was in the hospital for like, God, I don't even know, I want to say six weeks. Like he was in the hospital for a very long time. And I used to talk to him on the phone pretty much every night. We would talk on the phone until like three in the morning. Just because he, you know, I mean, he was just in the hospital tripping out on everything. And he would just tell me these crazy things about like how people have like an out-of-body experience. and he. He definitely had had that on the way to the hospital. He's like, I can remember looking down on my body and seeing them trying to revive me and talking about how they didn't, you know, like, we don't, we don't know if he'll make it type of thing. You know, it's just one of those things. Like, I don't even know how you explain situations like that in life or people that go through things like that. Like, it's very strange. Like, he had that go down. Justin Hopper was an 18-year-old senior at Redlands High School in December of 1992. He was a strong and athletic football player who was described by friends as, quote, concerned and caring, someone who always tried to make everyone happy. Justin was well-known at school, got along with everyone, and maintained a 3.0 average GPA. Justin's mother, Valerie Mitchell, had been married several times and the family moved a lot. Dale Mitchell was Justin's stepfather and he worked for the county of San Bernardino. The family lived in a modest home in the middle of Redlands. Justin had a job at a local Mexican restaurant called Cuca's. Cuca's was a staple in town, known for its BRC, short for Bean Rice and Cheese Burrito. Justin's close friend Susie says he was anything but typical. 
She describes him as charismatic and recalled how he liked to talk about anything under the sun. Susie and Justin dated in junior high, and they remained very close friends into high school, even though they were no longer together as a couple. According to Susie, Justin wasn't like most Redlands kids. He was incredibly charismatic. Like I'm sure he'll talk to other people, and they'll probably say the same thing. He was very, very funny, very charismatic. He was not, I don't know, not a typical what you would run into of like a Redlands kid. An interesting background. His mom had been married. Can't even probably get the number right. Like she might have been on her fifth husband with his stepdad that found him. Like so, all of his siblings, they all had different dads. So they had a, and they had moved a lot when they were really younger. So they had a kind of an interesting background. Not like typical Redlands kids that are like you know generations and generations of family members living in Redlands. They were a little bit different than that but close in their own way. Like they've, you know, that was one of the heartbreaking things about it is, you know, they, they stood like one thing they had like Sunday dinners regardless, like that was a big deal to them. So there was a closeness there, just not, it was just not, they were just not a very typical Redlands type of family. And there's a lot of times there's that interest in kind of keeping like perceptions a certain way about families and whatnot. And they just didn't enter the picture for them. They just kind of were who they were and, didn't care about those things. So I think he had a very interesting and not typical of a Rutland's upbringing, which I, I mean, for me, it was like intriguing. It was like, he was a very different type of person and super interesting. Like could talk about, you know, just had something to say about anything under the sun. Not like a lot of the people that I feel like when I was that age, a lot of guys were pretty basic, pretty interested in like, drinking football like yeah it was very you know and there's nothing wrong with that but yeah Justin was not he was he was definitely more of a interested in the world interested in things Ryan Bangs a 17 year old junior at the time was a schoolmate of Justin's although they were not close friends in fact some say they weren't friends at all and said the two of them didn't know each other all that well Ryan Bangs was described as a loner who had an obsession with the military and guns. He had a short, closely shaven, military-style haircut and often wore camouflage pants to school. According to Ryan's brother, Ryan wanted to be a Marine and had already spoken with a recruiter. Ryan was a big kid, standing six foot two and weighing about 200 pounds. Ryan and his family lived in a modest home in North Redlands. Ryan's father was retired from the Air Force, and his mother worked as a civilian contractor at Norton Air Force Base. Ryan had gotten into some trouble as a teenager. While in junior high, Ryan and his brother broke into a house in their neighborhood for no apparent reason other than it was just, quote, something to do. The two brothers spent a few days in juvenile hall for the home break-in. Ryan was a member of the Young Marines, a, quote, U.S. Marines-sponsored group that leads teenagers in military exercises such as tracking enemies, according to the San Bernardino County Sun newspaper. Ryan would eventually be expelled from the Young Marines for misbehaving, although a representative for the group would not elaborate on the specific reason why Ryan was expelled. Aaron Mercado was a 17-year-old junior and a classmate of Justin and Ryan's in 1992. Aaron was a thinly built, dark-haired kid with high cheekbones. He, too, had a love for guns and was also a member of the Young Marines. 
This is where Aaron and Ryan met and bonded over their love of guns. After Ryan was expelled from the group, Aaron stopped attending. Unlike Ryan, Aaron lived on the south side of town in an upscale neighborhood. Aaron's father, Dr. Henry Hank Mercado, was a prominent dentist and a member of the Redlands Unified School District's governing board for the past several years. Aaron did not run with the popular crowd at school, but the Mercado family was definitely well-known in Redlands due to Dr. Mercado's presence on the school board and his successful dental practice. Many Redlands families went to Dr. Mercado for their dental services. According to a friend of Aaron's, he would ask his parents for guns for Christmas, and he would get them. More than one source said that Aaron abused animals for fun. One person said that in junior high, Aaron killed a crow as schoolmates looked on. A friend of Aaron's said he, quote, bragged about shooting cats and chasing down dogs while driving. People have described Aaron as strange and sinister. Although Susie did not know Aaron well, she always felt there was something about his eyes, like an emptiness or a lack of empathy. As little as I knew Aaron, I mean, I, you, you, sometimes you put things on people retrospectively, right? Like, you're like, yeah, it was definitely, like, there was a sinister aspect to him. But, I mean, for real, like, my awareness of him and just the energy, just the vibe was always like, hmm, like a little bit, I don't know. Like there's just something in the eyes. Like there's just something there that just doesn't seem like it connects in weight. Like there, there, there's a lack of empathy or a lack of um, connection. At some point in high school, Justin began selling drugs. This was an odd choice according to Susie. The choice Justin made to sell drugs was not in line with who he was at his core. It seemed Justin was leading somewhat of a double life. At first, Justin sold marijuana, and he eventually began selling speed, too. Susie was not part of that world and had no idea Justin had gotten into drug dealing. In the weeks leading up to his death, Justin opened up to Susie and told her about what he had been doing and expressed concern that it was all becoming too much. It was as if he knew something bad would happen if he continued. Justin's instincts told him he needed to leave Redlands for his own safety, and that is exactly what he was planning to do. He wanted to change, and he had been saving money in preparation for the move. His plan was to move in with his father in Rialto, about a 15-minute drive from Redlands. On the day of Justin's murder, December 15, 1992, Ryan Bangs, Aaron Mercado, and Ryan's girlfriend, April Pendleton, drove together to Aaron's house during their lunch break from school. This was according to trial testimony from Riverside County Sheriff's Detective William Trosper. Trosper said the three teenagers arrived at Aaron's house during lunchtime, and Aaron went inside while Ryan and April remained in the car. When he came out of his house, Aaron had a shotgun in hand. The three teenagers then got into Aaron's truck and drove back to school. According to statements from April, she thought Ryan and Aaron had discussed selling the shotgun to someone named Daniel. Perhaps this was a lie they told her in order to cover up the real reason Aaron grabbed the shotgun that day. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. School got out at 1.50, at which time Aaron and Ryan gave April a ride home in Aaron's truck. Justin Hopper was with them at this time. Susie's cousin, Chris, who worked at Kuka's restaurant, saw Justin get into Aaron's truck that day after school, and he thought this was odd. Chris knew the three boys and thought it was strange to see Justin going anywhere with Ryan and Aaron. It just wasn't a fit. Chris may have been the last person to see Justin alive. Shockingly, he was never interviewed by police after Justin was killed. The day that it went down, my cousin Chris Medlicott, he had very strange connections to this whole murder. He was one of the last people to see Justin. He actually saw Justin go with Aaron and Ryan. So, Ryan, Aaron, April, and Justin are all in Aaron's truck together and they drove to April's house and dropped her off. About an hour after dropping April off at home, she got a call from Ryan telling her that he and Aaron were coming over. The two of them arrived shortly after the phone call, but Justin was no longer with them. Justin did not return home from school that day. This alarmed his parents, and they reported him missing the following day on December 16th. Two days after Justin failed to come home from school, his parents received an anonymous tip prompting his stepfather, Dale, to go searching for Justin's body. The anonymous tip led Dale to an area of San Timoteo Canyon in Riverside County, not far from Redlands where they lived. Dale found his stepson's partially buried body that day in the San Timoteo Canyon in a remote area between Redlands and Moreno Valley, known as the Badlands. It was apparent that Justin had died from multiple gunshot wounds. Justin had wounds to his head and upper body. Susie's cousin, Chris, who saw Justin getting into Aaron's truck two days prior, was working at Kuka's the day Justin's body was found. He and others who worked at the restaurant were listening to a police scanner that day and heard a message come over the radio that Justin's body had been discovered in the canyon. The discovery of Justin's body prompted an investigation that would not last long. Detectives quickly zeroed in on Ryan and Aaron because the two of them had not exactly been quiet in the days after Justin's murder. Rumors had been going around pointing police in Ryan and Aaron's direction almost immediately. The two teenagers were arrested one day after Justin's body was found in the canyon. John Bertetto, Aaron's best friend at the time, told detectives the murder had been planned by Aaron and Ryan the day prior to Justin's death. John said that he had lunch with Ryan and Aaron the day before Justin's murder at Del Taco, which was a popular lunch spot for high schoolers at the time. According to John, Ryan and Aaron told him they were planning to kill Justin and discussed details of how they would go about it during lunch that day. John says he went along with the plan at the time because he thought they were only kidding when they talked about the type of gun they should use and how they might entice Justin to go to the canyon with them. During the lunchtime conversation, 
John told Ryan and Aaron they should cut off Justin's hands and tattoos to make it harder to identify his body. I'm not certain what would prompt someone to say such terrible things, but John later testified in court that he was not serious and thought the other two were only joking about the murder plot. John also told detectives that the day after the murder, Aaron confessed to him, telling John that he and Ryan had shot Justin. A few days after Justin's body was discovered, John said he spent time with Aaron at his home. Later on that same evening, John and his father, who was a San Bernardino County Deputy Sheriff, went to the Redlands Police Station and told them about incriminating conversations John had with Ryan and Aaron in the days after Justin's murder. During interrogations, Ryan and Aaron joked and whispered about the murder when they thought they were alone in the police interrogation room. This, according to detectives, who questioned the two teenagers in connection with Justin's murder. Ryan and Aaron were unaware they were being videotaped during interrogations. According to reports, Ryan was whispering to Aaron when detectives left the interrogation room. Aaron was caught on tape asking how police found out about, quote, the 12, referring to the shotgun. It was also reported that Aaron said he wished that he had left town in the days after the murder. After questioning, Ryan and Aaron were charged in connection with Justin's murder and taken into custody. The Redlands community was stunned. With Aaron's father so deeply entrenched in the community and so few murders occurring each year, this was something every household was talking about. Freshly is the easiest and most convenient way to eat healthy no matter what life throws your way. Freshly's team of chefs create all-natural, gluten-free dinners and deliver them fresh to your door. So even if you get stuck at work late, you can still come home to a delicious dinner cooked by a chef. No more worrying about having to figure out what's for dinner and especially no mess to clean up after. Freshly's team of chefs source the finest all-natural ingredients they can find and then work with nutritionists to ensure their meals are as healthy as possible. All of the meals are made to order and pre-portioned. A couple of my favorite meals are the sausage and peppers with tomato cauliflower rice and the steak peppercorn with sautéed carrots and French green beans. Freshly's menu is created by chefs for people who want to eat healthy but are living busy lives and don't always have the time to shop, cook, or clean. Customize your weekly meals from their constantly changing rotating menu of more than 30 chef-crafted options. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Every single meal comes with a detailed and easy-to-read overview of each ingredient featured in the meal. And let me tell you, there's nothing better than knowing that no matter what happens in my daily life, that I have a chef-cooked dinner waiting for me at home. Check out this week's menu created by Freshly's Chefs and get $25 off your first order of six chef-cooked dinners, plus free shipping. To get this exclusive discount, head over to Freshly.com forward slash podcast. You'll feel so relieved to come home to a chef-cooked meal every night with Freshly. That's Freshly.com forward slash podcast for $25 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Studio, makers of my go-to pair of headphones. Studio's headphones are high quality and modern looking. You've got to check them out. Head on over to studio.com and enter promo code MURDERISH at checkout for 15% off your purchase. 
Ryan and Aaron were charged with first-degree murder and faced life in prison without the possibility of parole. The death penalty was not going to be on the table because they were juveniles at the time of the murder. Both Ryan and Aaron pled not guilty. The case was tried in Riverside Superior Court, Department 61, with Judge Robert Macomer presiding. The first day of trial was on October 2, 1995, almost three years after Justin was murdered. The people were represented by Prosecutor Bill Mitchell. Ryan was being represented by Floyd Zagorski, a public defender. Aaron, however, was represented by a well-known criminal defense attorney named William Gebby, who had been practicing law for over 30 years. The two defense attorneys argued for separate trials and juries, but Judge Macomer denied these requests. Ryan and Aaron would go on trial together and in front of the same jury. If found guilty, the two could be convicted of second-degree or first-degree murder and possibly spend life in prison. The first few days of trial were spent with all three attorneys making arguments and motions, one of which was a request by Aaron's attorney for the defendant to receive a haircut. The judge granted this request. The people motioned to allow testimony regarding a conversation John Bertetto and Aaron had at a football banquet the day after Justin's murder. This motion was also granted. On day five of trial, the judge received a phone call from juror number five, who was subsequently excused from the jury. Alternate juror number one was sworn in. On day eight of trial, the following exhibits were presented as evidence by the prosecution. A shotgun, a rifle, a photo of the victim when he was still alive an aerial photo of the crime scene, a map, photos of the crime scene, an autopsy photo of Justin, a shotgun shell from the crime scene, a shotgun shell from Aaron's house, live shotgun shells from Aaron's truck, several x-rays, and other items. On day 10 of the trial, the prosecution's star witness, John Bertetto, was sworn in. According to John's testimony, Ryan and Aaron planned Justin's murder the day before he died, during lunch at Del Taco. Bertetto said he knew about the murder before it happened, but claimed he did not think the defendants were serious about it. John also testified that Aaron confessed to the murder the day after it happened. The defense attorneys attacked John's credibility, stating that he had spent time in a mental institution. They also pointed out that John helped Aaron hide shotgun shells and clean the shotgun that was allegedly used in the murder. The prosecutor pointed out that Ryan had only spent time at Charter Grove Hospital for, quote, educational counseling, not for mental health issues. John Bertetto testified that he lied to detectives in order to protect his best friend at the time. He also testified that he was with Aaron when he cleaned the alleged murder weapon, but said he did not help him. Both defense attorneys also went after Bertetto, saying he has an interest in, quote, testifying favorably for the prosecution. Perhaps they were referring to the fact that John's father was a deputy sheriff in a neighboring county. At one point during trial, things took a very dramatic turn. Prosecutor Bill Mitchell held up the alleged murder weapon, a shotgun, in his arms and proceeded to tell the jury that Aaron fired the first shot at Justin but missed. He fired a second shot that hit Justin in the arm, at which point Aaron, quote, 
leveled the shotgun at a crawling hopper and blew his face off. This statement by the prosecutor corresponded with Ryan Bang's account to police of what happened that day. According to Ryan's defense attorney, he voluntarily went to the police after the murder and also provided them with a videotaped reenactment of what happened. Ryan's statement to police was essentially that he and Aaron lured Justin to the canyon to, quote, kick his ass. Justin, however, thought the three of them were going to the canyon to do a drug trade for guns. According to earlier statements from Justin's brother, he had been wanting to buy a gun before he died. Knowing that Justin sold drugs, Ryan and Aaron told him they would trade a gun for drugs in the canyon that day. Ryan would later tell detectives in a recorded statement, quote, I did not shoot Justin Hopper. I did not want him killed. In Ryan's videotaped reenactment of the murder, he told detectives he remembered seeing Justin hold his left arm above his head and then he fell backward. Ryan said, quote, I turned around because that was not what I was there to do. Ryan then said to detectives that he heard Justin shout, quote, Oh God, please and went on to tell detectives, quote, his teeth was hanging out of his mouth. I was just standing there looking like, oh my God. After Justin was killed, Ryan turned his body over and took the $590 Justin had in his pocket. The two defendants left the scene and went Christmas shopping with Justin's money the following day. According to Ryan's defense attorney, he stole Justin's money because Aaron was, quote, standing over him with a gun. Prosecutor Mitchell said this was a case of, quote, a spoiled rich kid who murdered for thrill and that Ryan was just a follower. Prosecutor Mitchell's theory of motive seems in line with what many others believe. Susie's cousin Chris, who knew Aaron, said he believes Aaron's motive for the murder was that he was a psychopath and chose Justin because he was an easy target. Perhaps Aaron chose Justin because he had been selling drugs, and maybe people would think it was a drug deal gone bad, but that's just conjecture on my part. We may never know the true motive for Justin's murder. I have not been able to find any information that suggests Justin did anything to warrant any sort of retaliation from Ryan or Aaron. It seems Justin wasn't even an acquaintance of Ryan or Aaron's. In fact, all of the information I have reviewed leads me to believe the motive may have been that a gun-loving kid who had a propensity for harming animals came to a point where his urge to kill became strong enough to act on. To my knowledge, Ryan and Aaron never claimed self-defense or said that Justin's killing was an accident. Instead, Ryan's defense attorney pointed the finger at Aaron and Aaron's defense attorney put most of his energy into discrediting the star witness, John Bertetto. Their efforts would be in vain. The physical and circumstantial evidence was overwhelming against the two teenagers. Plus, they had witness testimony that claimed Aaron confessed to the murder. On the 14th day of trial, the people and defense rest their cases. The day after closing arguments were heard, juror number six was excused due to family hardship and alternate juror number two was sworn in. The jury began deliberating shortly after the alternate was sworn in. After deliberating for five days, the jury was ready to deliver a verdict on Aaron's case. On November 8, 1995, 
about a month shy of the three-year anniversary of Justin's murder, the jury delivered the following verdict for Aaron. Guilty of first-degree murder, plus additional enhancements for use of a firearm and lying in wait. Although the prosecution charged Aaron with an additional enhancement of murder in commission of a felony, the jury deadlocked and could not reach a verdict on that enhancement. Aaron was scheduled to be sentenced a month later, but instead, this day came and the judge referred him to the California Youth Authority for Diagnostic Study. The purpose of this is to determine the defendant's amenability to treatment by the Department of the Youth Authority. Aaron was transported to the facility and sentencing was then scheduled for March of the following year. On March 4, 1996, a different judge was presiding and he granted a continuance of the sentencing to May 13th, two months later. On May 13th, 1996, Judge Macomer was ready to deliver Aaron's sentence. In court that day, prosecuting attorney Bill Mitchell described Aaron as, quote, a little demon without a conscience. Aaron's defense attorney requested that he be sentenced to the California Youth Authority. Judge Macomer denied this request and then read Aaron's sentence, which was life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional five years for the enhancements. Aaron's life sentence plus five years was ordered to be served consecutively, which means back-to-back and not at the same time. Aaron was also given a restitution fine of $10,000. On the day of his sentencing, Aaron was given credit for 1,860 days of time served, or just over five years. Aaron was then transported to California Department of Corrections in Chino, California, about a 35-minute drive from his family home in Redlands. Ryan Bangs would have a different outcome than Aaron, as the jury deadlocked and could not reach a verdict. Ryan went on trial for a second time on April 24, 1996, five months after Aaron was convicted. This time, there was a new judge presiding and several new witnesses were brought in to testify on behalf of the prosecution. The people were again represented by prosecutor Bill Mitchell. Ryan, again, was represented by public defender Floyd Zagorski. Judge Patrick Majors was presiding over the second trial. Ryan's defense remained essentially the same as his first trial, with the finger being pointed at Aaron as the mastermind and shooter. The trial ended on May 2, 1996, and the jury began deliberating the following day. This time around, the jury only needed three hours to reach a verdict. On May 3, 1996, three and a half years after Justin was murdered, Ryan was found guilty of first-degree murder with additional enhancements for use of a firearm, lying in wait, and unlike Aaron, he was also found guilty of murder in commission of a felony. The verdict was signed by the jury foreperson, Stephen Wilson, and sentencing was scheduled a month later. After a couple more delays, final sentencing was on November 8, 1996. On that day, several people spoke on behalf of the defendant. Dale Mitchell, Justin Hopper's stepfather, read several letters written by family members of Justin's. Judge Majors sentenced Ryan to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus one additional year for the enhancements. He, like Aaron, was to serve his sentences consecutively. 
Judge Majors found that Ryan, just like in Aaron's case, was not amenable to being committed to the California Youth Authority. Instead, he was sentenced to California Department of Corrections in Chino, California, the same facility where Aaron was serving his life sentence. The judge granted Ryan visitation with his parents since they had come in from out of state for his sentencing hearing. Perhaps they moved out of Redlands after the murder. I'm not certain, though. Ryan was also ordered to pay a restitution fine of $10,000. Interestingly, in sharp contrast to Aaron's situation, the judge gave Ryan no credit for time served. This, in comparison to his co-defendant, who received credit for five years of time served. Although, it didn't matter much, given that Ryan was to serve a life sentence without parole. Or so people thought. Twenty years later, Ryan's lack of credit for time served would mean a whole lot more than anyone would have ever expected. More on that later, though. In May of 2014, in his 17th year of being in prison, Ryan requested a modification of his $10,000 restitution fine, citing that he was unable to pay it due to his inability to generate sufficient income in prison. The court denied Ryan's request. There have been some shocking updates since Aaron and Ryan were convicted of first-degree murder. In 2008, 13 years after Aaron's conviction, his defense attorney, William Gebby, was forced to surrender his law license after he reportedly stole money from clients. Gebby was also found to have allowed an innocent client to sit in jail for months, even though he had evidence that would have cleared him. In 2015, 20 years after Aaron's conviction, he would find himself in need of an attorney again. This came about after a bill was passed that would have a major impact on the convicted murderer's life. In 2013, Governor Jerry Brown passed a bill that amended Penal Code 1170-D2. The new bill would allow juvenile offenders to petition for release after serving 15 years in prison. Requirements under the bill stated that an inmate must demonstrate remorse and that they have worked toward rehabilitation while incarcerated. If the inmate checks those two boxes, so to speak, then the court may lower the inmate's sentence to 25 years to life. Remember, Aaron and Ryan were both juveniles when they committed the murder, making them eligible to petition for a reduced sentence under the new bill, as long as they met the other requirements. The bill, however, does have some exceptions. For inmates who tortured victims or murdered a law enforcement officer or firefighter, the bill does not apply. With the assistance of a new attorney, Aaron petitioned for a reduced sentence under the new bill. Aaron's request was granted, and on October 23, 2015, he was released from prison after serving 22 years. Justin Hopper's family was devastated by this news, saying, quote, Just when you think you've been able to somewhat move on, you get a phone call from lawyers and attorneys that Aaron is going to possibly be out of jail. It brought a lot of sadness to our family. It wasn't over. We thought we could move on, and bringing those memories back was a terrible feeling. It is not fair to the victim's family. We have suffered enough. This statement was made by Justin's younger sister, Christina. Since his release, Aaron has resided in a halfway house in Van Nuys, California, which is in Los Angeles County. 
friends of mine who still live in Redlands, said the Mercado family celebrated Aaron's release on social media. This upset many people in the community as they thought a celebration was not in order given what Aaron did to Justin. Dr. Mercado is still practicing dentistry in Redlands today. In 2017, 20 years after his conviction, Ryan also made a petition for a reduced sentence under the terms of the new bill. Members of Justin's family attended the hearing. Ryan exercised his right not to make a statement in court that day. And like Aaron, Ryan's motion was granted and his sentence was reduced to 25 years to life in prison plus one year. Ryan had been incarcerated at Lancaster Prison in Los Angeles County and was ordered to remain there after the judge approved his request for a reduced sentence. Ryan remains behind bars at Lancaster Prison today. I don't know why he has not been released. Perhaps it's because he was not given any credit for time served at the time of his conviction. Or perhaps a parole board denied his release. Whatever the case, it seems Ryan does have an opportunity to be released from prison at some point in the near future, given that his sentence was reduced. About a year after Justin was murdered, his brother visited Susie at her house. Susie said Justin's brother was, quote, a broken person. During their visit, Justin's brother told Susie some things that she had not been aware of. He told her that, unbeknownst to Justin and Susie, he had recorded a conversation between the two of them the last time Susie ever saw Justin alive. Susie also recalled seeing a scrapbook of Justin's in which he had cut out pictures of Susie he had gotten from the local community newspaper. Susie always thought Justin was different, but seeing the scrapbook he had been keeping made her aware of a softer, more sentimental side of Justin that probably makes his death even harder for her to take. His brother came over to our house, maybe like on the year anniversary of Justin's death. It was like he was a broken person. It was so sad. I can't describe it any other way. He was, and it was great to reminisce about, you know, actually, here's a crazy thing. A really good friend of his brother's reached out to me through Facebook probably six years ago. And I was floored. And to this day, like, I don't even know if I want to hear it. But apparently when I saw Justin a month before he was murdered, um, and I was over at their house, just for shits and giggles, his older brother and his best friend recorded our conversation or parts of our conversation. And he's like, I have some trippy information for you. And he's like, when you were over the last time you saw Justin, like there is audio, there is a recording of, of our conversation. And I'm like, oh wow. And I'm like, somewhere out there, like, I could conceivably get a hold of, of this conversation. And there's, you know, and there's, there's other, there was some crazy stuff that, I mean, I knew I was close to him, but um, that I did not realize about like, like how he felt about me. It was, it's just trippy. Like his, they had an open house after the funeral and there was um, a photo album they had, or like a scrapbook, I guess you would say that his mom had kind of put out on display in his bedroom. And he had, like, there were times that I had been in the um, Redlands Daily Facts for, like, cheerleading or what have you, or I did musical theater in high school. And he would, he would like, get the articles and clip them out and put them in the scrapbook. And we weren't even dating anymore. I had no idea. And that tells you that's a very kind-hearted, sentimental person to do that. 
So that gives you a huge glimpse into the person that he was. This story was especially tough for me, partially because, in a way, I feel like I sort of knew Justin after hearing Susie talk about him. I feel confident that he would have gotten out of the dangerous lifestyle in which he found himself, and I think he would have gone on to do good things with his life. His story was also very difficult because I cannot wrap my mind around the cold manner in which Justin was killed. Hearing details regarding how he was killed is absolutely heartbreaking. There was plenty of time for the murderers to have mercy on Justin and change their minds, but they persisted. Aaron shot Justin at least two times and he was still alive, terrified and crawling on the ground saying, quote, Oh God, please. Anyone who could then level their shotgun, take aim, and fire a series of deadly shots at someone so helpless and afraid has got to be the closest thing to non-human I can imagine. Where is the evidence that Justin wronged Aaron and Ryan in any way? Where is the evidence showing that Justin assaulted the killers and they acted in self-defense? I have not found any evidence that would lead me to believe these two killers had any reason at all to do what they did to Justin. Justin's murder was for nothing. Nothing at all. Now, picture yourself in Justin's family's shoes. You feel some sort of relief that your loved one's killers will spend the rest of their lives in prison. You feel like you can start to move on as well as anyone can after losing a loved one. Then, two decades later, you're forced to relive the tragedy all over again because the killers are given an opportunity to be free. I am not here to debate whether Governor Jerry Brown's bill was just. I just can't help but think how hard it must be for Justin's family to deal with these recent developments, let alone deal with losing Justin. Now one of the killers, most likely the mastermind behind the deadly plan and the one who physically murdered Justin, is free. He did not spend life in prison as Justin's family had hoped he would. Aaron is living in Los Angeles County and Ryan could likely be out of prison at some point soon. Having the opportunity to speak with Susie allowed me to really understand who Justin was. He was not a drug dealer. Yes, he sold drugs, but that was not the sum of his being. Justin was a kind-hearted person with a unique personality, different from most guys in town. Justin was a good friend to Susie, and one whose love for her ran deeper than she even knew. Justin had a job and maintained good grades in school. Justin wanted to change and get out of the bad situation in which he found himself. He already had a plan in place and was taking steps to carry out his plan which would get him a fresh start. Justin did not deserve to die so young. He deserved to get the fresh start he wanted. I will keep an eye out for any updates on this story, specifically Ryan, given that he may be released from prison at some point. I want to thank Michelle Kolosinski for her help researching this story. Michelle has been such a great supporter of this podcast, and I appreciate her so much. She's definitely murderish and just an all-around cool and fun person. Thank you so much to the latest Patreon supporters, Veronica, Sarah, and my mom, Terry. You guys are helping to keep this show going, and for that, I sincerely appreciate you. I hope you have received your murderish cards and stickers, but if not, they're coming. 
If you haven't heard already, I'm going to be interviewing Tanya, John Meehan, a.k.a. Dirty John's ex-wife. Remember those recorded phone conversations between Tanya and John Meehan on the Dirty John podcast? Tanya will give us her perspective and insight on the whole ordeal, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with her. I'm also going to speak with Tanya's daughters, whom she had with Dirty John. I think these ladies, like Tara Newell, can help a lot of people by telling their stories, and I admire their bravery in doing so. The interviews with Tanya and her daughters will be released as a full episode, and I will keep you all posted on the release dates. Now, I've got a couple podcast recommendations for you. If you haven't already, check out Murderous Minors and Twisted Philly. Murderous Minors is just what the name says it is. It's tales of murder committed by minors. Simone, also known as War Baby, has some crazy killer kid stories in her arsenal, so check it out and subscribe. Twisted Philly is a true crime genre podcast that focuses on stories centered in Philly and Pennsylvania at large. Dina Marie has a great voice and a knack for storytelling. Definitely check her out as well and subscribe. Both of these podcasts are somewhat niche in the true crime genre and bring listeners something unique in the vast true crime podcast world. Please make sure to go to the Murderish Facebook page and let me know your thoughts on this episode. What do you think about the killer's sentences being reduced and one of them being released from prison? Did Aaron serve enough time for what he did? Just search Murderish Podcast in Facebook and you'll find the group I've set up for us to discuss cases covered in episodes and all things murderish. Before I go, something kind of funny and slightly embarrassing happened while I was on the phone with Susie talking about this story. My daughter, who's four years old, popped in during our phone conversation and said something that was not murder-related at all. When this episode is over, hang around if you'd like a little laugh and a glimpse of how not glamorous this podcasting thing is. And as always, you guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see you all very soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on social media, on Twitter at MurderishPod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. I have a closed group set up for us to discuss all things murderish. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash murderish. If you choose to become a patron, you'll get some extra perks in exchange. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash murderish. Murderish merchandise is also available at two online stores. Links to the online stores are available in show notes and in the About section of the Murderish Podcast Facebook group. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. So I can't even imagine, you know, Justin's family walking away from that. Go potty. Okay, honey. My my four year old came in here to tell me she has to go potty. Oh, she has to go poo poo. <laughs> okay, honey. You go ahead. Okay, shut the door. You go, honey. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me know that. Mom life.
you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode. Plus, there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. Hello guys, I'm Tim. Do you like conspiracies, UFOs, aliens, ghosts, and cryptids? Check me out at Paranormal Report. Go to paranormalreport.us. That's paranormalreport.us. Do you want to be a part of the show? Go to paranormalreport.us and join my Discord. You can also follow me on Twitter. And as always, I take suggestions on topics of what to cover on the show. That is paranormalreport.us. Now let's get back into the show. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.